Hey everybody, thanks for being here. Hope your weekend is going well. Before we get to calls, I want to rant about a couple of things. Um, first of all, a lot happened this week. Uh, Tucker Carlson was fired by Fox News. Uh, we can discuss that if people want to. I've already been over it. I, I did a, seg- a bunch of segments on it on the Jimmy Dore show where I was guest hosting and Max Blumenthal and myself discussed it yesterday on the Gray Zone live stream, but we can discuss it here more if people want. But um, I want to focus first on what I just find unbelievable. So we had recently this admission from Mike Morrell, former deputy director of the CIA, that he organized that statement calling the Hunter Biden laptop story a Russian information operation shortly before the 2020 election. That he wrote that at the behest of the Biden campaign, that like he got a call from Anthony Blinken, and that's what prompted him to write that statement. So not only is this intelligence officials spreading a lie to interfere in the presidential election, it's them doing so at the behest of the Democratic candidate that this lie is helping. That's a huge admission. And the media, of course, having participated in this lie, has not been interested in the fact that you have... I mean, first of all, not only just intelligence officials interfering in an election, which is scandalous in itself, but spreading a lie and doing so to help the candidate that started this lie. So one of the few shows to talk about this was CBS's Face the Nation last week, where they had on Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, who's very close with Biden. He was a surrogate on the Biden campaign. And he, he came on and he basically still insisted that there was nothing, that there was no problem with any of this. And that he still thinks the laptop really is a Russian disinformation operation. Listen to his, listen to his answer. Mike Morrell, that quote, set in motion the events that led to the statement they released. Um, Democrats say they have portions of the transcript showing no request was made to write a letter. It was just a call for advice. So do you recall what happened with the campaign and the drafting of this letter? I don't. I don't have any either specific recollection, nor was I directly involved in that. Uh, But as you laid out there, Margaret, there's a big difference between uh, the characterization by some House Republicans and the actual full transcript and what I believe actually happened there. Um, Frankly, so far, uh, all of this is uh, full of sound and fury, um, signifying nothing. Uh, I don't think there's a there there in terms of some malign coordination. Um, I do think that it had um, the signature elements of a Russian influence campaign, and it was not inappropriate for national security officials, former national security officials, uh, to say this looks like, at this point, uh, a Russian influence uh, uh, effort. So, of course, there's no follow-up on the question. For example, what evidence was there that, that this was a Russian influence effort? And how can you say there's no there there when the person who wrote that letter, Morell, is admitting he did so at the behest of the Biden campaign? Of course, there's no follow-up on that. Uh, they just moved on. Uh, but that's an extraordinary statement because, of course, what has been the Democrats' signature obsession for the last seven years has been freaking out about interference in our elections. You can't interfere in our pristine elections. Here are a group of former intelligence officials interfering in the election by spreading a lie that this laptop comes from Russia. And everybody goes along with it. And then this comes out that the Biden campaign asked, pretty much asked these intelligence officials to write it. And there's no scrutiny whatsoever. And people like Chris Coons are still allowed to repeat the original lie that this laptop comes from Russia. It's just, to me, it's an example of how uh, or 
Orwellian our media is and how lies like this get spread. And when they get so easily debunked, there's just no effort to grapple with the minimal facts and everyone just moves on. So I just find that extraordinary. And I find it extraordinary that the story is still being ignored. Here's another uh, thing I find extraordinary. It's being increasingly recognized that Ukraine does not have a good prospect when it comes to its uh, planned counteroffensive. So today in the Sunday Times of London, there's this headline. It's by Mark Gelati, who's an analyst of Russian affairs. It says, Ukraine isn't ready for its big offensive, but it has no choice. I'll read that again. Ukraine isn't ready for its big offensive, but it has no choice. So that's an admission that Ukraine doesn't have the military capability to carry off this big offensive, but rather than conclude something like, why don't, isn't, why don't, why doesn't Ukraine engage in peace talks? The conclusion here is Ukraine has no choice anyway. And that's perfectly in line with the policy of fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian. Because when you don't care, when you don't care about Ukrainian lives and you don't care about Ukrainian agency, it makes sense to say they have no choice but to hurl themselves further into the abyss. And, you know, the reason why we're seeing headlines like this is because it's become obvious that after so long, Ukraine doesn't have the capacity yet to make any more big gains. That was confirmed in the Pentagon leaks recently. Uh, that came out and that totally contradicted what we've been hearing from the Biden administration. For example, uh, Lloyd Austin, when he said this just one month ago. With with regard to your optimism about Ukraine having the upper hand, that is what you told me yesterday. It, it is. Now, what I was about to say, Senator, is that uh, Ukrainians have inflicted significant casualties uh, on, the, on the Russians, and they have depleted their, uh, their inventory of uh, armored vehicles in a way that no one would have ever imagined. And so now we see Russia reaching for T-54 and T-55 tanks because of the level of damage that the Ukrainians have inflicted on them. And we have, uh, in the meantime, been... And reaching, reaching for those tanks uh, demonstrates what to you, sir? It, it demonstrates that uh, their capability is waning. And uh, it, we've, we've uh, continued uh, to witness uh, them be challenged in the, with uh, artillery munitions uh, and other things, and they're reaching out to Iran, they're reaching out to, uh, to North Korea. Uh, so... Um, I think, you know, we'll see an increase in the fighting in the spring as conditions for maneuver improve. And based upon the things that we've done and continue to do, I think Ukraine will have a real good chance. Do you, do you believe that we're, we're... So there you go from Austin. Ukraine has a real good chance. Well, privately, that's not what they believe. And we've confirmed that with the Pentagon leaks. Uh, here's, for example, one headline in the Washington Post that came out a few weeks later. U.S. doubts Ukraine counteroffensive will yield big gains, leaked document says. It's a marked departure from the Biden administration's public pronouncements about the vitality of Ukraine's army and is likely to embolden critics calling for negotiations to end the war. Yes, um, as was obvious to those of us who, fo who followed the war all along. So now, accordingly, we're seeing some headlines basically with the Biden administration preparing the possibility that Ukraine will not make big gains. And that will allow them to say, well, yes, we expected this. We warned about this. So this is not a surprise. So uh, I think the inevitable is finally sinking in. Uh, meanwhile, Biden is already uh, getting endorsements from every progressive, uh, from Bernie Sanders to the squad, even before there's even a primary. 
So here, for example, is Ilhan Omar speaking to MSNBC. I mean, the, the, the reality is, you know, in the last two years under the slimmest majority in the House and in the Senate, we've been able to do incredible things by passing uh, bills like the CHIPS Act or the Infrastructure Bill or the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, the president was in my district celebrating some of that work. We are at this moment dealing with fascism. In this moment, we are dealing with people who don't actually believe democracy is good. We are dealing with people who are proposing the kind of economically devastating and dangerous bill that we just talked about. I don't think we have um, the the opportunity to, to have the kind of conversations that people want to have. This is a very dangerous moment for our country. And the president that's leading us has done a great job and we need to coalesce behind him. It sounds like indeed. So that's a lot of saying we don't have, because of fascist, the rise of fascism on the right, our threats to democracy, we don't have the time to have the conversations we want. So for example, speaking about all the issues that were once foundational to progressives like Medicare for all, uh, higher minimum wage, all those things are at the table. And of course, she totally skips over Biden's record on foreign policy, which has been which has been disastrous. And she's saying we all have to unite behind him. So that's the state of the progressive today. Um, I can understand if after a primary and Biden's still the winner at that point, they felt the need to endorse him. OK, um, if you're going to be in the party, that, that's how it works. But to not even put up a fight and to just give your vote over to Biden without asking for anything first before the primary even kicks off. That to me speaks to the overall weakening of any progressive sentiment in this country. And I think a major part of that has been this culture promoted by Russiagate and then the Ukraine proxy war, where we have to stand behind the Democratic leader. We have to uh, pay lip service to all their narratives and we have to get behind them without without being questioned, because if we don't, then we're going to be called possibly uh traitors or aiding Putin because we question Biden's proxy war in Ukraine or, or whatever else. So this culture, this McCarthy culture has helped weaken the progressive movement in more ways than one. And uh, the people who I think are the strongest example of that are those who are supposed to be the outliers, people like Bernie and the squad. Bernie also this week announced his endorsement of, of Biden very early. All right, let's take some calls. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. Hi there. Uh, oh, save some of the good stuff for Monday morning because uh, this is going to be a juicy one. But uh, great, uh, great intro rant. Uh, I love all the topics. I uh, kind of wanted to to uh, ask for your thoughts on uh, a topic that I know captured uh, Matt Taibbi's attention, which was uh, the uh, the prospect article. Uh, that uh, those uh, two younger journalists uh, wrote that uh, caught so much flack and they got thrown under the bus by their editors uh, in a particularly cowardly manner. And the one editor that did stand up for them also got ratioed by, uh, you know, presumably the audience of the prospect, which was uh, surprisingly unnuanced and kind of shit-libby. And this was what the article about Tucker Carlson, where the and, and so I didn't read the actual article. Also, so it's, 
it was people offering sort of a mild, dif- like, or sort of, uh, they were saying that Tucker got it right on some issues. Is, is that what they were saying? Right. It was kind of like, basically, it was far from a praiseworthy, like, a, for, from a, you know, praising him. It was more like trying to parse and understand why he was popular or why he had such resonance with such a, a large and diverse audience. So there was a mixture of uh, criticism and, uh, and praise there. And, you know, it was a surprisingly, like, it was a nuanced, uh, you know, uh, concise, but uh, I thought uh, perceptive article. And, you know, if anybody was confused as to, you know, the managing editor's take at the same eye level bar, you know, you could see his uh, left anchor podcast saying, uh, you know, Tucker is a crypto Nazi blowhard and we're got we're glad he's gone. And, uh, you know, so that was the first one that passive aggressively threw them under the bus. Like I didn't edit this article and I don't approve of this take and this is not my take and I don't agree with it. Like anybody was confused. And then shortly thereafter, uh, David Dyan in an incredible act of cowardice, uh, in reaction to however many, uh, letters they got from Ray, from readers who were mad at that nuanced take, uh, no matter how many times they stipulated, yes, we don't like a lot of his politics. He's, you know, said some very racist, cringeworthy things. But here's the thing, um, you know, obviously he threw them under the bus too, which was truly appalling. And then Mo Kasich, uh, who's the investigations editor, that was the one person that stood up for them that basically explained this is a nuanced take. This is a complicated issue. This is not a black and white thing. She also got ratioed and nobody stood up, you know, but I thought that was an incredible act of courage and I was very impressed with her on that one. But yeah, I, anyway, that was, uh, yeah, well, look, so I, uh, I know I'm, I'm just looking now at, at the, at the debate online. So I know one of the, so one of the editors of the week who threw the writers on the bus is Ryan, right. And, Ryan Cooper is a really funny individual. He was a he he was a columnist for uh, the week or something like that, and he was such a hardcore Russia gator, and would constantly or not constantly he would he would sometimes attack those of us on the left who were skeptical of Russia gate and make fun of us. And I would make fun of him. And uh, I just have this, this this very funny memory where he he wrote this column here. Let me let me pull it up. He wrote this column. Um, after the Mueller report, still claiming that the Mueller report had like vindicated all his dumb conspiracy theories. And he chided, he scolded those of us uh, on the left who he thinks got it wrong. And he says, he says, uh, um, uh, there was no, uh, there was no excuse to simply not examine the details of such a big story, much less baldly misrepresent them. Yet that is precisely what many ostensibly lefty voices have done. Um, this is an important lesson in how propaganda works. Taking a hard look at the evidence in a complicated story and coming to a measured conclusion with all the proper caveats is tedious and boring. Seizing on a convenient half or quarter or 20th truth or straight up falsehood and loudly repeating it 10 million times sticks in people's minds. So basically, uh, he was, and he was basically trying to scold leftist skeptics for in his opinion, getting it wrong. And then I pointed out that his story had made two serious mistakes. So they had to append two, two, er, two corrections to their article, uh, which I thought was just, that was a funny episode. And so I'm not surprised that he's one of the people now throwing his own writers under the bus. And yeah, that's, 
that's liberal culture today. You go along with the narrative, whatever it is. Um, Russiagate was real. Uh, Tucker Carlson is uh, the embodiment of evil. And anybody who deviates that, um, they have to be thrown under the bus and, and attacked. It's a really, um, it's just a, it's just, it's a completely antithetical to what journalism is supposed to be, which is critical thinking and allowing for some actual nuance and blah, blah, blah. And they can't tolerate that. So I'm not surprised to see that the standard liberal would, would engage in that kind of behavior. Uh, yeah, I um, I thought you guys did a really good job of parsing that issue on uh, the Gray Zone live stream. And if you get a chance, maybe uh, check out the article because it, it kind of goes along the same lines. Like you did the, the kind of caveat of these are the things that Tucker says that I have a serious problem with, but he also did this, this, and this. And I think you'll find that there's... Um, you know, a, a great deal of overlap in the in the takes between that article and and your your take yesterday on that live stream. But anyway, that's all I got. Thanks for for taking my call. Thank you. Hey there. Hey, Aaron. Happy Sunday. I mean, not that happy, uh, considering everything. Um, but yeah, great to hear from you and Jonathan. Um, I, I also wanted to shout out the, the Greystone live, the Greystone live stream. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's becoming one of my favorites. Um, and I wanted to ask you about one thing that kind of sent chills down my spine and I really wanted to make sure I understood it. Um, like, do we know exactly how many, um, casualties of war on the Ukrainian side, um, are like, do we know the exact figure? Because, I mean, when Max was talking about, uh, the, the, like, basically all of the trained proficient soldiers being already gone or dead, you know, it kind of sent, it kind of sent chills down my spine. And just hearing figures like a hundred thousand, um, is really hard to even conceptualize, like that much death, that much suffering. Um, so do we know, like, how many casualties so far have been? Um, yeah, the, well, the Pentagon says it's over 100,000, but, you know, I, I, we have no idea. Or, or at least I have no idea. I think it's very so difficult. So it could be even more. I'm sure it could be more, it could be less. Certainly, it's a lot of people. It's a staggering number of people. That's, that is, that's not in doubt. The exact figure, who knows? That's horrifying. I mean, it's horrifying, you know, and it reminds me so much, like, how we ritualize, like, things like, you know, when, uh, like, you know, honoring victims and things like that of 9-11 and celebrate their families, you know, and, you know, having lost somebody and just thinking of like something like a hundred thousand people, a hundred thousand families, like it just, it's, re it really shows the criminality of like prolonging this kind of conflict instead of bringing it to a peaceful negotiation, um, immediately, you know, and, and and what you were saying with the article in the New York Times, like, oh, we just have to, <laughs> like, we don't have a choice. Like, Ukrainians don't have a choice. They just have to keep fighting. Like, that's that's psychotic, right? Like, I'm not just oh, I, going crazy. Oh, I, I agree. Here. It's it, of course, it's it, it's it's crazy. It's it's it reveals such contempt for Ukrainian lives that all these young people are shipped off to war can just uh, for what? Like, does the does the U.S. really have a stake? in whether or not the Donbass is autonomous and whether or not Crimea belongs to, 
to Russia, does it really have any impact at all on it, on, on the U.S. and the state of the world? No, it's, it's such a needless war. It, it could have been resolved. It could have been resolved had simply Ukraine and the U.S. implemented agreements that they claim to be committed to, namely the Minsk Accords, which really, if that, this wouldn't have happened. And, um, it, it was just a really cynical decision to side with Ukraine's far right, uh, over Zelensky's own peace mandate, as I've written about a lot and talked about a lot. So it's, yeah, it's totally senseless. And, uh, I mean, Putin, Putin made the decision to go to war. And so he has responsibility too. Uh, he made the decision to sacrifice a lot of his own people. And I like to think that he had all their alternatives and didn't have to do that. So I, I think he, he has responsibility as well. But the side that we can control being the West is, is the Western side. And there's been a conscious decision to prolong the war. And I, and I made this point yesterday on the gray zone live stream, I think, the influx of NATO weapons into Ukraine. Yes, I mean, a lot, there was a huge training effort in the, in the years preceding the war. There was a major, major training effort to build up Ukraine's army. And to make them into a formidable fighting force. But the really, really big influx comes not before the war, but actually right after Boris Johnson sabotages peace talks between Russia and Ukraine, which is that well-known episode where, you know, Ukraine and Russia agree to the outline of an agreement. And Boris Johnson comes over in early April 2022 and says, uh, it's not time for peace with Russia. It's the time to fight Russia. And if you make peace with Russia, we're not going to back you up. So that's an order to Zelensky to keep fighting. And then that's when Ukraine gets that huge influx of NATO weaponry. So Zelensky was basically rewarded, quote unquote, uh, with a huge influx of weaponry uh, because he went along with their sabotage of peace talks. So it's so cynical. And that's what prolonged the war. And it, it did help Ukraine make some gains. They had some success, but they also lost a lot of people in the process and they prolonged the war. And it didn't have to happen because there was the outline of a peace deal uh, anyway, that, that, that could have prevented all of this. So it's so horribly cynical and, um, and senseless. Uh, yeah. And I think, I think it's really, you know, especially, I mean, we're going to try to piece together what happened even 10 years from now, like, you know, like, it's really important that, that, that story gets told that, that, you know, that we could have acted and in prevention of so much loss of life that you know that we're still not fully uh you know able to make sense of um yeah i think that's why it's it's so important that um you know people like you um covering that um are still out there i also found a funny um tweet from mehdi, Mah- mehdi hassan about um you know talking about it was from 2018, but he was talking about how proud he is to work in journalism because he gets to interview CIA spies about Russia Gate, and uh, you know, just sort of. It, it was sort of a funny window to me in terms of how he looks at journalism and what he thinks his job is. Um, so I put that in the chat, um, and you know, he said he, he said it makes him really love his job. But I think I think there's something, there is some kind of a through line between Russia Gate and this war that I'm not quite quite sure how to make sense of um you know well, and I, on that you not, can stay tuned for my book which is exactly which is which is exactly about the through line between russia gate basically oh, the, yes. the uh the like the short story is that helped criminalize any kind of diplomacy with russia and helped 
manufacture consent for for war. I mean, it, it made diplomacy impossible if you look at it. And uh, so many of the key figures behind Russia Gate are just diehard enthusiasts of the Ukraine proxy war. And so there's a total through line, and uh, and that's what I write about. So I am working on. Uh, thank you for the call, Sam. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Uh, so uh, I want to also uh, uh, give you props for uh, the lives you guys have been doing. Uh, honestly, I used to hate watch you guys in the past, uh, but now a big fan, a huge fan. So uh, really great content and very educational. Why did you hate it? <laughs> I was really deep into Russiagate in the past, you know, and uh, then, you know, definitely the gray zone helped me, uh, you know, understand. Uh, it's really, uh, <clears throat> you know, the conspiracy is really well, it was really well orchestrated. And uh, the tragedy is probably there's 90% of people still believe it. Uh it's really unbelievable. Like outside of Twitter, normal people, I think 80, 90% still, uh, you know, I mean, depending on where you live, but it's really very, very prevalent. And, you know, I give you props for your coverage of that story. You know, it's, it's really been very helpful. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. And also, so I, I have an outsider's uh, outlook you know, on, on U.S. politics. I, uh, I I lived in the Middle East most of my life. Um, you know, in, in 2015, there was an, an article by one of uh, Obama's, I think, advisor or one of his cabinet, I, I really forgot the name, about that we need to implement a strategy to basically choke China and just change our foreign policy and they lay. I don't know if you if you if you know what I'm talking about. It was in 2015, in the Atlantic or you know one of these journals, <clears throat> setting out a plan basically that we have to basically you know switch to uh, attention to to China and focus. Also you know also keep surrounding Russia. You know do sanctions etc. Now the the thing is I, I look at it from. Uh, you know, because I, I believe the state still acts on the corporate interest still in the U.S. Now, <clears throat> the corporate interest obviously is profits. So you want to look at it that way, like what are they doing? What's the grand plan here? Now, is it possible that because obviously we see the U.S. is shifting the sudden shift from the Middle East to Asia is really unbelievable. I mean, the U.S. people forgot that they fought 20 years in Iraq for, you know, for influence in the region. 20 years of fight of war. You know, people forget that, that suddenly, you know, uh, that uh, the U.S., you know, because I know, like, you know, the U.S. still has, like, the CIA still has influence. They, they know stuff. They can make, you know, they, they have history of manipulation, so I, I still believe that they have they're still competent for whatever plan they're doing. So the sudden shift from the Middle East 
uh, obviously Iran, uh, 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 Saudi Arabia relationship, uh, all the changes, you know, obviously that, you know, that, that, that we saw, especially over the last month or so, uh, are massive. Now, is it really, is there a grand plan that, and at the same time, the focus is on China, more troops, escalation, escalation, more now uh, train, troop trainers inside Taiwan, you know, all the visits, they're hitting max, you know, they're like, they, they want to start something for sure. And China obviously is responding with more, you know, exerting their influence in other ways. So they're obviously as a response to all of this. So do you think there is a grand plan in the background that they really know the threat is China on U.S. interest and we want to focus on China and we're going to support Ukraine to keep Russia busy, you know, have a front uh, that's going to keep him occupied while the U.S. is focusing on China, etc.? Do you think there is a plan behind the scenes that this is really where we're heading right now? And is it really for, is this all for U.S. interest? Is there like a tangible benefit at the end of the day to, to, to Microsoft and Bill Gates? And I mean, because, you know, these the guys. Uh, yeah, yeah, I got the question. I, uh, I think it's fair to speculate. Who knows? You know, I, look, it's certainly, it's been acknowledged for a while that, Ukraine is a huge tool for weakening Russia. This is made secret. I mean, this is made plain. Um, Carl Gershman, who is like the one of the founders of the National Endowment for, or, or the former head of the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, he wrote in the fall of 2013 that when it comes to the you know West battle against Russia, Ukraine is the biggest prize. And um, basically, the argument was that if Ukraine can fall into the Western orbit, then that could lead to regime change with Putin. And there's a RAND report. RAND's like this Pentagon-type thing. Russia would be to draw Russia into a war in Ukraine. So I don't know if necessarily, you know, drawing Russia into a war in Ukraine is part of an overall strategy to weaken China. It, it could just be part of the longtime U.S. goal to destabilize Russia. But... Um, Look, I also think it's fair to speculate because the U.S. is obsessed with weakening China. China is the U.S.'s biggest geopolitical competitor. And, yeah, uh, you, you might be right. I don't know. Uh, but um, already in the public record, there's ample evidence that just the U.S. has always seen Ukraine as a way to, to destabilize Russia. And that's why Adam Schiff said that U.S. aids Ukraine so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight them here. Yeah, it's it, it really sounds like when these officials come and say, yeah, we got to go and we got to start the war now and we, you know, it's going to happen regardless. It really sounds like as if someone talking about some imaginary monster, something that is that people know impossible, that is because because the, uh, the the ramifications of war is is really going to be monstrous on us. So it's like, I don't know if they're hallucinating or they have some different reality. Like people don't understand that if you look in your your house right now, 95% of the products are made in China. Uh, The iPhone, if it costs $900 today, if it's made in the US or anywhere, even in Mexico, it's going to be at least double the price. So 
like you know it's kind of suicidal at the same time so i don't see how that's going to help us at the end of the day uh weakening china because it looks i mean china is basically the u.s factory it's literally we make everything there from steel from i mean anything everything you know so it kind of you know i you kind of think that they know what they're doing but do you think they know what they're doing people in power (laughs) you know people uh, who make the uh, to a certain extent, uh, but no, sometimes things get away from them. And I, I mean, I think they really thought, for example, that Ukraine was going to lead to, or at least had a good chance of destabilizing Russia. And, you know, remember Biden was saying the, the ruble is now rubble and now look at Russia and their, their economy is, has less of a chance of a recession than the U S does right now, according to Bloomberg. So, um, to a certain, but people like Victoria Newland. They know what they're doing because all they care about is just using other people to undermine rivals. That's that's pretty much their MO. And, you know, they have bled Russia to a certain extent. Um, but I think you raised a lot of really interesting points about China. So thank you for the call. Thank you. Okay. Our next caller is none other than Jose Vega, who this week added uh, a new milestone in his growing list of achievements in confronting stenographers for power and people in power when he confronted – New York Times and Washington Post and called them out to their faces for all their horrible coverage. So welcome, Jose. And Jose, if you're there, I can't hear you. Is that just me or... Yeah. Okay. Other people can't hear you, Jose. So I'm going to remove you from the queue and come back, maybe restart the app and come back in and I'll let you back in after this next caller. Okay. Uh, Ruben. Hello. Hi there. Uh, um, yeah. Um, could y'all hear me? Yeah. Okay. Sweet. Awesome. Um, so, um, thoughts of Biden 2024, not really. Um, he should not be president, obviously. But um, on the international side, um, last time I called, I said something about like the um, Russia Gate in um, Germany having their own version of Russia Gate. So it turns out I've been following obviously what's going on with the explosion of Nord Stream. Um, and one of the ex um, minister presidents, uh, Manuela I forgot her last name. Um, she has been pushing back just a tiny bit because now, um, basically, um, so Nord Stream. So what? So so originally, um, energy was going to be transferred from like Russia to um, to to a state in Macedonia um, to be distributed to like to to Germany as a whole. So. There was this climate foundation that is now having tax irregularities, and the former um, minister president by name of Manuela, for her last name, um, she has been sounding a few, a few concerns, saying, "Hey, we're we're we are finding some tax irregularities due to the explosion," and the state government because Olaf Scholz is not saying anything is stating that she is, that she is having some connections with other Russian officials. So they're blaming her for bringing up tax irregularities, genuine tax irregularities as she bringing up 
Russian conspiracy theory. And she's pushing back saying it's not a conspiracy theory. So I'm I'm looking at this this climate fo- um, foundation that I'm that I was a part of, and we're having tax irregularities. So she's coming at this uh, at this Russia Gate type of narrative with with financial proof of since you know since Nord Stream exploded and this climate foundation is directly um, is directly linked to Nord Stream. Why is she having? I mean, why is this foundation, which she was a part of, having tax irregularities? And the state is pu- is pushing back as 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 it as um, as a Russia gate. Um, conspiracy theories. Okay, well, I haven't heard of this one, but uh, maybe put a link in the chat and I'll check it out. Okay, for sure. Um, but yeah, that's basically it. Because um, and also, um, good job. Uh, I saw you on on the Jimmy George um, Jimmy Dore show, so good job on that. Thank you, thank you. All right, thanks Ruben, for the call. Okay, Gator. Hey, Aaron. Um, Jose is at the back of the queue. Uh, if you want to pull him up and ahead of me, if you want. Oh, okay. Thank you for the reminder. Yes, I'll do that next. Go ahead. Um, just on Biden. Okay. Um, basically, the way I kind of look at it on a simple level, if I'm doing a bit of fast thinking, is that he is utterly corrupt, and so is his son. And basically, on that basis alone, it's in his interests to attempt to get back into the big seat next time round for all of the power and immunity that that grants him and his ability to potentially even pardon his own son and all of that kind of thing. Plus, we already know that pretty much all the arms of the state, like the FBI and the intel agencies, are all essentially in, you know, aligned um, with his kind of agenda or the agenda that he represents in the sort of uniparty DNC angle. So it's not really a surprise to me that he is going to run again. And also the way that the DNC has rallied around him and, se- and immediately said, nobody's going, there's not going to be any um, Democrat, uh, Democrat primary debates. It's like, <laughs> and, and he's still using Kamala Harris as well. I mean, why? I don't know. But so that tells you pretty much that the entire uniparty structure is, is, is on board with protecting Joe Biden, the bentest pip, president since i don't know what that's kind of how i view biden does that sort of superficially sound reasonable yes it does yes it does <laughs> okay I was, I was hoping you'd say no but you're missing this one important thing and that, that would make me happy but now that makes me feel a bit sad um does um on on the on the on the gray zone um this week I, you know i i really appreciate your and uh, Glenn Greenwald's format where you go into stuff, you know, you, you, you do a good b- a bit of historical analysis as well. Um, and, you know, with Glenn Greenwald, he's, he's trying to sort of really break down issues and, and provide a bit of media passing savvy as well. So all of you guys are doing really good work and I, I really appreciate it. So uh, thanks very much for what, for, for what you're doing and how you're doing it, because I think it's really important. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. And so we'll bring in, Ho- no we'll bring in Jose now. Cheers. Okay, can I be heard now? Yes, you can be heard. Hello. All right. Yes, listen, sorry about that. Um, first, I just wanted to thank you, Aaron, and everybody who shared the recent intervention where I confronted the executive editors of some of the biggest papers in the country. I've been very moved by a lot of the support that I've gotten, and I'm really happy that this has resonated with 
people because even though I'm always hopeful, it, it, it does give me a lot of hope that other people are starved for the truth and are starved for some pushback. And I would just, you know, urge others to do what I do from whatever political background they are, I, you know, or creed or whatever, you need to do it because it's your duty as an American to do it. And I think that's the beauty of this country is that no matter what divides us or separates us, we're all united in that we are in the pursuit of truth. And I think that will unite us all and will counteract any kind of division sowed by the mainstream press. And I wanted to give you a special thanks for sharing my intervention on Jimmy Dore with, uh, with Seymour Hirsch. That was just hilarious to me. And I, I, that was invaluable to see him react to that live. And he also kind of indicated that he had seen the whole thing. So that was also good to know. And um, that's really all I, I wanted to come on here and say, and just, you know, share how grateful I am that, that you, you, uh, you know, amplified it. And now Glenn Greenwald shared it this morning too. And um, I don't know, it's been translated. I've seen it in Spanish subtitles, French, Italian, German, Russian, and Chinese, you know, people are sending me this stuff. So I really appreciate wow. that. So thank you how a many, lot, uh, really. Jose, how many views does it have now? Uh, on Twitter. Do you, have you counted? Have you seen the, the count? Yeah, well, if you count on just my page, it's like 1.5 million, but <laughs> I, I have like bootlegs, right? Like people yeah, take right, it. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. But something like over 15, 16 million. Wow. And then on YouTube, I've seen people do commentary of it in other languages that get millions also. So like yeah. uh, something like 30 million and that's being conservative. So yeah. It's pretty, yeah. I mean, it's it, it, like the popularity of this video and uh, speaks to how much people just don't trust the media and what a bubble they live in. And so a rare moment when they get confronted with all their lies, it really spreads. It resonates because this is what, this is what so many people believe. And it just never gets allowed to be expressed because the media is such a bubble and, and you burst that. And the response accordingly is, is so supportive. And um, what you do in confronting these people directly I, it's really awkward. It's hard, I think, at least for me, to like call someone out in such a clear way, right to their faces, in a room full of people who are hostile to you, and you've done it so consistently. So, you know, thank you for uh, being willing to put yourself out there and to, and to call these people out. Really destructive lies. And um, well, yeah, no, thank you, thank you, thank you. And and honestly, I do read like the Gray Zone every day, and uh, Glenn Greenwald, anything he puts out, and I watch what you and Max do, and also Jeremy Lafredo has been really good too and um and and kit clarenberg there's too many people to name you're you're all amazing and uh um and 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 just uh thank you that's all i can say well thank i'm you. sure many people in the chat today share the sentiment towards you jose so so uh thank you for doing what you do okay sterling aaron again what a great show i can't believe i'm actually following jose um, but before I get to him, I just wanted to say what a great show it was yesterday, The Gray Zone, and um, how what Max said yesterday about what we need to be doing. Because there's so many people that are following you guys that are, you know, seeing the same things that are happening. And um, it's just really encouraging to know that there are faces out there that can kind of lead in this way. And so exactly what um, Jose is doing is exactly what needs to be done. Is everybody meant or able to do that, not necessarily, but to encourage people to get out there and do it. I just really think that's half the battle. But um, also, as far as encouraging people whose morale can get really crazy, watching all of those um, 
Norman Finkelstein clips from your from the Jimmy Dore show this week were the absolute best for me because he called Mehdi Hassan a sewer rat. I was practically jumping up and down and clapping because the guy is such a snake. And but this is who has a job anymore. It's the people that are willing to just, you know, uh, just smile and lie for you know, the end of democracy, but, but an end of an empire, which is going to be fine with me, but to just be OK with the end of democracy um, and just watching real quickly. And this is the last thing I wanted to say what happened this week on social media with um, Tucker Carlson and um, Robert and JFK Jr. The pushback was unreal. It said I, I was constantly getting um about how he's been for every other war and on and on and on and on. It's like, I, I don't care. I mean, and nobody said that he wasn't. We said a big reason why he's gone has to do with his take on the Ukraine war. It's just that simple. They have to close it in. It's going to be one media, uh, Fox and MSNBC. They're going to continue dividing us because that's their role. And you're not going to get anything real other than that. And you can either sign up for it and keep watching it or not. There's really nothing, no control we have over that. But, um, and then with the RFK stuff, I mean, it was like just all his whole history of everything. And it's like, you know, maybe so. But I'm look at our alternatives. But just the attack has been amazing. So my whole point is, like Max was saying, um, I think we just have to keep, you know, every time they do it, keep calling it out every way you can. Social media, going to different things. and um, But, yeah, thank you guys so much. I, I've said this a million times. I wouldn't be able to do this without you. I would feel like I was just sitting here losing my mind. Um, and wondering if I was the one that was crazy. And so, yeah, thank you guys so much. And Jose, you're just epic. And I hope everybody um, gets to see all of these. I'm sure this crowd really has, but I'll keep sharing it anyway. And again, Aaron, thank you. You guys are the best. And please say hello to Max and Jimmy when you can. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks. Andrew. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yep. Right on. Um, I just had a couple quick thoughts about the, the Biden 2024 announcement and the kind of general discussion about how, how do we kind of take that, uh, and also the, the various quote unquote progressives and rushing to endorse him. Um, I feel like the, the, you know, the, the presidential elections will continue relatively unchanged, whether or not the kind of independent media sphere or left media sphere take a active role in, in critiquing it. You know, it, it certainly may represent a possibility for some gains, you know, maybe we could um, curtail the, the desire for some kind of presidential or vice presidential candidate. But at the same time, like I think a lot of the, the online independent media really you know, with some help from Tulsi Gabbard's debate performance that one time really just destroyed Kamala Harris's presidential campaign. And then they just installed her anyways. So I would say that um, the more attention and time that we pay to Democrats and Republicans, the less attention and time we can spend on non-media people's projects. So creating resource sovereignty at a local level, you know, pulling together organizations that work on issues. So I'm talking about like community organizers who might work on prison reform or anti-police brutality or home, you know, homeless outreach, things like this Um, kind of trying to sew together coalitions in local areas and really put our nose to the grindstone to 
build the foundation for a solid third party. I don't think it's impossible in the United States for a third party to actually win. I think some people say that the value of a third party would be in the the propaganda value or, you know, maybe uh, some limited gains could be made. I think the the potential is a lot higher, but I think that um, the more that we focus on, even if we think and and rightly think that there can be major um, opportunities for our own propaganda off the back of a, of fervor around a presidential election. Um, I think that that is a lesser gain than could be won from uh, people really, I think um, having the courage to take part in local organizing. I think it's like a lot of people feel like maybe they could do commentary or maybe they can do, um, you know, spotlight on other organizing, but that they don't feel themselves uh, like they're they're ready for it or prepared to do that. Um, and I think that that's that's just my message is that we probably don't need to pay a whole lot of attention to the standard elections and the more that we can pull our our brains out of the the mindset of we have to have a response to the upcoming election. That's there's always an election every two years. So we'll never really stop spinning our wheels unless we kind of commit to checking out until we're ready to to participate as really potent actor. Andrew, thank you for this. I, uh, if you look at the, the polls right now, I mean, RFK Jr., according to Fox News, and maybe this is off base, but according to their poll, he has 19%, and Marion Williamson has, I think, above 5% too. And, you know, Bernie in 2016 came really close to winning. So to me, all that underscores the need for a third party. But, uh, yeah, I, that should not come at the expense of... Um, local organizing too, where people can, can be very effective. Yeah. Did you see, um, just really quick, did you see Kim Iverson's interview with RFK Jr.? I didn't, no. Uh, I didn't watch the whole thing. I saw some clips. I think Savvy Sabs did a good breakdown, but basically, um, her ask to RFK was, or, you know, when you ultimately are going to inevitably get screwed by the Democratic Party, will you run as an independent? And, he, I mean, from what I saw, he hadn't really considered that very much or didn't want to give up his hand uh, as to what his intentions are. Um, you know, I think it, like like you said about how popular Jose's, um, you know, all of his takedowns have been very widely circulated and, and all power to Jose. That's been really good to see. Um, you know, the, the one of the big takeaways is like the public really doesn't trust the corporate press, which is great. And I think that the the immediate, even before he declared he was running, the immediate interest in RFK Jr. is also great. I, I watched you and Max's uh, live stream talking about that. And I agreed with a lot of what both of you had to say. Um, so it's not to say that that's like useless, but I think that even without a lot of the kind of independent media sphere agitating um against the democratic establishment it seems like a lot of the the voter base already gets that so it's like um i'm definitely not saying don't cover this or that especially to you know you and max and the and uh, everyone else at the at the gray zone kit and everyone and you break so many important stories so i'm i'm definitely not saying that your priorities are out of whack at all i think what you do is invaluable but i think a lot of other people who are like 
you know, not exactly sure what to do and are kind of hoping for like a, a Hail Mary pass to come through every couple of years. And that's kind of how I view RFK Jr. as well. Um, like, yeah, his his stances on war and everything and the intelligence agencies are far head and shoulders above all of the so-called progressives and the Democrats or Bernie. Um, but I still am not entirely sure. convinced that. It no, will- sure. Sure, sure, sure. The, look, I, I, I'm not like, uh, I can't call myself a fan of RFK Jr., but the question is, would I rather him be in the primary or not? So would I rather there be zero challengers other than Marianne Williamson to Biden? Uh, or would I rather have a challenger? And RFK Jr. says some things I really agree with when it comes to, you know, not spending all this money on war. And so just that right there is enough. I'd rather have him there than not. But I agree. Uh, candidates, especially in the Democratic Party, are, are not the answer they're just but i i I don't think i I don't think it's a negative to have them in there um we'll we'll leave it there andrew thank you okay pseudonym hey um so i wanted to share my thoughts about rfk i've been doing a lot to um support his candidacy just um telling people about it um my perception on the ground from doing that over the past week um at some scale, I mean, obviously only one person can only do so much, but um, is that still the vast majority of people don't even know he's running. Um, And that across all demographics, there are, um, there's a lot of positive responsiveness. Um, You hear it in the media said that it's only, you know, baby boomers who are nostalgic for their, you know, personal experience of the 1960s um that are going to be drawn to the Kennedy name uh that that talking point Aaron I found to be entirely belied by uh the facts as, as I've experienced them on the ground um I can just say I, I'm I'm in the Midwest right now traveling and um uh I went to Chick-fil-A last night and um in the drive-thru I told um my waiter who was a, a black man in his early 20s that RFK was running he was an immediate convert, um, uh, or at least was, um, I mean, I don't know if, if you'll stick with him. I mean, that's, that remains to be seen, but he, you know, he, it was very welcome news. Um, and then uh, today I went to get lunch at this um, uh, Greek family restaurant that I've been patronizing, eating at for uh, decades. I used to go there like every day after school and high school to get lunch there. Um, and uh, the family, you know, that that um, works there um, and owns the place, um, they also um, were both uh, incredibly uh, positive in their response. I mean, it's it's really like you're sharing the gospel with some people. I mean, um, it's 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 remarkable. It's, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced in in politics. I uh, was an activist who was. Um, very engaged in supporting Obama um, at an early date um, going into the 2008 election. Um, and there were never instant converts, but there there have been I, definitely over a dozen now instant converts in the conversations I've had over the last week. And I think it's probably more like in the, tw- in the 20s, probably. Um, and um, yeah, I mean... Um, so it's just it's it's something that can blow up. I mean, and I think the reason is is that the um, the images of 
the Kennedys and, and what they represent historically in the life of our uh, nation in terms of the United States. And I, I, you know, I consider you an honorary citizen if you're if you're not legally one, Aaron. But um, anyway, um, uh, it's it's a story of, uh, you know, a sort of tragic loss of uh, democratic um, uh, of a kind of enlightened democratic vigor that was really inspiring and that made, you know, that was um, Robert Frost in his uh, inaugural poem before um, JFK's inaugural address uh, called it a new Augustan age. I mean, there was a sense that, that there was this kind of classicism in terms of American culture that JFK as a figure really um, exemplified. And that comes through in like um, the history of art even. I mean, like there are these, you know, um, famous paintings by Rauschenberg and Warhol. Um, and then there are, you know, so many movies about JFK and things and um, just the, the image that he left behind is one that I think has continued to speak to each subsequent generation. I, I don't think the media is going to acknowledge that fact, but I think that is the fact on the ground. And I think it gives RFK a unique potential. And I, I, I would agree he's not perfect. I do consider myself a fan of his. I don't know all of his policy positions. I, I um, am agnostic really on the vaccine issue. I think he's probably not entirely correct maybe, but um, it's, you know, beyond the scope of my own expertise. Um, and um, that's not, that's not what motivates my support for him at all. Um, it's much more the desire to actually sort of restore uh, genuine freedom to our, um, uh, you know, real national culture in terms of what the people be allowed to um, uh speak their minds got it i got it i got it i got it yeah i just you know look i don't share i think there's been a lot of mythology around the kennedy family and the idea that jfk and rfk were anti-war and anti-deep state personally having read cy hirsch's book the dark side of camelot i I just don't share that view that unlike pretty much all my friends on the left but all that said, I think RF, you know, RF, I don't judge RFK by who his family is. I just judge him by what he says. And I think he says important things. And I think it's overall positive. He's in the race. And I'm glad to see that uh, it's appealing to people. And uh, I think, you know, that's that's inevitable when just Biden has been so bad. And uh, when progressives are running cover for him, uh, that creates a lane for someone like RFK to actually position himself as an outsider candidate. And we saw with Trump in 2016 that that was very successful. So maybe Kennedy can replicate that to a certain degree. Uh, thank you for the call. All right. Okay, Brady, you too. Hello, mic check. I'll keep it brief. I have my two quick ideas uh, that I think you might dig. And hopefully someone like Jimmy Dore might dig them too. And first one, you're probably familiar with the idea of a proxy party. I came up with a new definition for what it is. And it's a proxy government model for parties to to use to challenge false dichotomies and synthetic leadership by transparently providing universal basic needs through mutual aid with efficient and novel forms of one-to-one voluntary democracy. And I think a really cool idea would be to not only form a legitimate third party or legitimate party to the left of libertarians and maybe a little more functional than the greens, but also maybe at the same time use the model of 
the weaponized false dichotomy against our current leadership, our current illegitimate leadership, by creating two parties, one that is far to the left or just legitimately leftist or progressive, you should, I should say, you know, and then another party that is more of a, a middle ground, like a more organic version of libertarians. Uh, I think that the libertarian movement is kind of co-opted by the whole Tea Party movement, and that's a whole another story. I think if we were to have a more organic version of a Tea Party party, like an olive branch party, I think if we were to have like an olive branch party that was a, served as a welcoming mat to people on the right, that that would be effective too. Um, okay, thank you, Brady. Uh, last caller will be Ian. Go ahead. Oh, hey, Aaron. How's it going? Good. Yeah, I was just kind of thinking about, I know I'm always like looking at the kind of overarching kind of narrative issues and like, you know, there's such a focus on, I guess, the concept of norms or decorum by like our, our current political and media class. And when I look at just the degree of election interference, especially in the last decade, you know, political ex interference from intelligence community and just all the malfeasance that the, you know, actively or passively that the media has been up to, it just kind of makes me think about like, you know, do they have any norms? Like, it sort of seems that there's kind of this uh, loss of, at least a loss of discipline, if not like principle amongst these classes of people. Like, I mean, you might remember like, you know, stuff like October Surprise or like Watergate were like scandals, right? And and then you have, you know, even going back to Obama, finding out that he's spying on everybody and putting out, you know, like with the Clinton campaign, you know, you know, false intelligence uh, reports that Donald Trump is a Russian asset. And, and now they're doing it again, or they did it again with the Hunter Biden laptop. And it's like, you know, it doesn't even raise like an eyebrow. And, and, and the media is just kind of like, yeah, this is okay. This is normal. Let's not really talk about it a whole lot. And it just seems like on a collective level, like, there's something really kind of destabilized going on. Either they don't see limits anymore or they're in some kind of like, I don't know, frantic, like desperation. Um, just from a sociological point of view, like for people to talk about norms all the time, there don't seem to be a lot of norms anymore. And I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they've been totally emboldened. They've done this now in two straight elections. Uh, brazenly interfering. The Clinton campaign did it in 2016 when they generated these Russian collusion allegations, and they also played a big role in generating Russian hacking allegations. They got all their intelligence uh, friends to um, legitimize their scams, and they repeated the exact same playbook. And, and the aim in 2016 was to, in part, to distract from leaks showing corruption by the DNC in the Clinton campaign. And then after the election, it was to kind of... Uh, justify their loss and deflect blame for it. 2020, same playbook. Uh, some leaks come out of a Hunter Biden's laptop. I don't think the laptop's contents itself were particularly damning. They just showed that Biden, Hunter Biden was engaged in boilerplate uh, influence peddling, you know, trading on his family name for opportunities. But rather than allow that story to go out there shortly before, before the election, they come up with this scam 
that it came from Russia. And uh, the media has gone along with it both times. So why wouldn't they just keep doing that when they get they have a total free pass? And all it would take really was for like a couple of corporate journalists just to actually be journalists and ask some tough questions about it. But no one's interested in that. Everyone wants to go along with it or just stay silent. That's why, you know, just to illustrate, Glenn Greenwald, he's at an, so he's at an outlet that's supposed to be adversarial. And he had to leave his own outlet that he founded because they wouldn't let him publish reporting about this story, about this scam. They, they instead chose to parrot the scam. So uh, it's, uh, the system works really, really well. There's no one telling anyone what to say. Everyone just internalizes that if they want to have, if they want to be accepted, they want to be invited to two fancy parties like the White House Correspondent Center last night. If they want to have career prospects, they have to go along and they can't ask questions. So basically they can't do what their job is supposed to be. It works, it works really, really well. And those of us who don't go along with that, all of a sudden we're deemed to be controversial. <laughs> yeah. like, all we're doing is just what the job minimally requires. It's, uh, it's very strange. Unbelievable. Um, last thing I really wanted to say is just in light of all this, I was really thinking about um, how much I'm li looking forward to your book, just because I remember, especially kind of in, in the real heat of the Russiagate era, like 2017 and 18, I felt like I was just totally losing my mind because you expend so much mental energy trying to kind of grasp onto a narrative of the world that makes sense to you. And it seemed like everything around me was just kind of lies or propaganda. And I was just really like, man, someone needs to tell this story to, you know, connect the threads of what's actually happening. Cause it's really crazy. Um, and it's, you know, it's not sort of mainstream, uh, you know, knowledge for, for whatever reason. And, uh, it's been a little while, but um, I think many of us are still kind of like yearning for a telling of that story. I think it'll be really important. Well done and done. I, at least that's what I'm working on. It's not done yet, but that is what I intend to do. And uh, I'm getting there. So thank you. Thank you for that. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great rest of your weekend and I'll see you next time. Bye.